You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. All right, well, I'd like you to open up your Bibles or open up your Bible apps, whatever that may be, to Daniel chapter 10. We left off here a couple weeks ago, and by the way, I want to thank Ken Chrysler. Uh, and if you are watching, thank you, Ken, um, but for filling in for me last week and sharing the word. But we left off two weeks ago in Daniel 10. And what I want to do this morning, I want to save time, so I'm going to skip the introduction. We're going to read the text. I'll make a few comments about it, and then we'll get into the, the main uh, thrust of the, the, the message today. So Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphos around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. And so I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking. And as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you are you who are highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling, and then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. And then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. And while he was saying this to me, I bowed my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth, and I began to speak. And I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone. I can hardly breathe. And again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid. You are highly esteemed. He said, peace. Be strong now. Be strong. And when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. And so he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written 
in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Wow, what a passage, huh? Let me give you a quick overview. In this passage, the Old Testament prophet Daniel is praying, he's fasting, he's asking God for understanding concerning the visions he had received about the future of his people, the Israelites. A good supernatural being, whom we assume is an angel, is dispatched with an answer, but is obstructed for 21 days by an evil supernatural being called the Prince of Persia. The angel with the message for Daniel finally gets some help from another high-ranking angel named Michael, and with this help and after a great struggle, he is enabled to deliver the message from God to Daniel, the answer to Daniel's prayer. The angel then says that now that he's done delivering the message, that he's going to face even more spiritual warfare when he returns and resumes the fight against the prince of Persia, after which he'll battle against the prince of Greece and once again be helped by the angel Michael. You know, Daniel 10 here offers us a unique and mysterious glimpse into the unseen realm where a cosmic war is taking place between good and evil supernatural beings right now. Working behind all the natural powers that be in our world. Working behind them are supernatural beings at war. Good princes versus evil princes. Elect sons of God and fallen sons of God. Holy angels and fallen angels led by Lucifer. And furthermore, what happens in this unseen realm, this unseen war between these supernatural beings has a direct impact on the events taking place among the nations and in Israel and in the church and in the lives of believers. Ephesians 6 in, in Ephesians 6, Paul brings this home to us. He brings this to bear. He brings this cosmic war down into our lives. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. Those are the princes that Daniel is dealing with in his, in his vision. And so Paul says, therefore, because of that, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. So you and I, you and I are somehow mysteriously involved in this, this cosmic war. It just doesn't impact the nations. It impacts our lives personally. Sometimes we, we don't sense it. But it's nonetheless going on. And other times we feel it strongly. But at all times, the forces of evil are attempting to thwart the purposes of God in your life and through your life. Paul said our battle is not against flesh and blood because we're living right now in two realms, the seen realm and the unseen realm. And for now, the unseen realm is veiled to us. And we accept the validity of it by faith in God's Word. We don't see it, but we know it's there. And although the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information about the unseen realm, it gives us enough to know, again, that our battle is not against what we can see. It's primarily spiritual in nature. You know, the Dutch prime minister and theologian, Abraham Kuyper, wrote this. He said, 
if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. That's no wonder then that Scripture calls us to armor up, to fight the good fight of faith, to wage a good warfare as a soldier of Jesus Christ. And as Peter says, to be alert and to be sober-minded because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The war is real. And we need to be aware of that, but not consumed with it, not superstitious about it, not fearful about it, because 1 John 4 says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We are on the winning side. We will win this battle because we are in the winner, Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we need to live with uh, the understanding and the, and, the under, and the knowledge that all the rebellion going on in the world against God and all the rebellion against His design and His will for humanity not only finds its origin in the nature of sin, but also in the activities of evil, principalities, and powers. We need to live with the understanding that what, what happens in the cosmic conflict in the unseen realm between good and evil supernatural beings directly impacts the realm in which we live. But conversely, we also need to know and understand that what we do as believers in the realm that we can see in obedience to God and for the glory of God affects the cosmic realm, affects the battle. Daniel is praying and Daniel is fasting in the seen realm and an angel, because of that, was dispatched in the unseen realm. What Daniel was doing in the seam realm affected the unseen realm. There was a battle that incurred over Daniel's prayer. Now, I'm not suggesting that God answers all prayer through an angelic envoy. He can answer prayer directly. Sometimes he chooses to use angels, just like he chooses to use us to bring the gospel to people. He could do that, but he chooses to use us. He uses his heavenly sons of God and his earthly sons of God. But clearly, our prayers in the seen realm affect the unseen realm. You know, the same could be true when it comes to sharing Christ with somebody and when they believe and when they're saved. Jesus said, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What is he saying? What happens in the scene, our obedience to God's commission in the seen does what? Affects the unseen. How does it affect? It doesn't produce a war. It produces praise. It produces angelic praise. Angelic praise that would have never taken place without something first happening in the seen realm. There's a connection between the seen and the unseen. And it's important to know that in life. It's important to know that as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, Daniel's vision, which is an unveiled in chapters 11 and 12, begins here in chapter 10. And two weeks ago, we looked at this from a global perspective. This morning, I want to look at it more from a personal perspective. We looked at the war, how it impacts the world. Now we're going to look at this spiritual war, this cosmic conflict, and see how it impacts, how it impacts our lives. Um, chapter 10 begins with a, a general introduction, as you saw in verse 1. 
given in the third person. And then in verse 2, Daniel himself in first person begins to explain the circumstances and the timing and the experience of this vision. We're just going to read the first five verses one more time. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. This is third person now. Its message was true and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to in a vision. Now notice this, we go to first person. At that time, I, now here's Daniel. I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food. No meat or wine touched my lips. I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, and as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen. Then he goes on to describe this person. All right, so the vision was given to Daniel, and the dates are important. You'll see why. Everything that God says is important, Amen. even the dates, especially the dates. This is not a made-up story. This is history. This is the recording of history. So the vision was given to Daniel in the third year of the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and it concerned a great war that would envelop the world and oppress God's people. And we know from Daniel chapter 1, and verse 21, that Daniel served as a palace official uh, right through and up to and through the first year of Cyrus' reign. And so this vision happens two years after Daniel is no longer working in the palace. I don't know if he retired or what, but he's no longer there. It happens two years later. And apparently, also, he's no longer living in Babylon, modern Iraq, but instead somewhere in a city, I assume, along the banks of the Tigris River. That's modern-day Iran. So he's moved east. This is where he has this vision. At the time he received the vision, he says he was just coming to the end, just finished a three-week period where he was mourning, verse 2, fasting, verse 3, and he was praying. And according to verse 12, one of the things he was praying for was understanding from God about the visions he had already see, received concerning the future of his people in chapter 7 and 8 and 9, which we've already studied. During this three-week period, he abstained from meat and wine. So he just basically was on a, maybe a bread and water fast here. And it says he didn't use lotions or oils, which means he didn't bathe. So he was doing what? He was purposely neglecting the distractions of personally caring for his body in order to more fully give himself spiritually to a season of prayer. It's a serious prayer. And according to verse 4, this season of prayer, the season of mourning and fasting and praying, came to a close on the 24th day of the first month. Now, in the Hebrew calendar, the first month is Nisan, like the car. The first month is called Nisan. He said that's when it was, on the 24th day of Nisan. And Nisan falls mid-March to mid-April on our calendar. And this means, this means this, because something took place within that period of time. It was called the Passover, the feast. And he says right here, he says, I was fasting and praying and mourning. Through what? Through this festival, this time of rejoicing that celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. He's not celebrating. He's mourning. He's fasting. He's not bathing. This is very unusual. This is a time where you especially bathed and anointed yourself and went to the festival to rejoice. And it would have been particularly joyful the third year of Cyrus when he has a vision. Why? Why is that? Because Two years earlier, 
Cyrus had issued a decree. All the Jews, you can go home now. Your, your 70 years is over. You can go back and you can rebuild your temple. You can start doing it. Ezra talks about this. Second Chronicles talks about this. So the 70 years of exile in Babylon were finally, finally over. Now Daniel doesn't go back. You would expect him to be at the front of the line going back. He's too old for the rigors and the, the long trip and the rebuilding. And he would die just a couple years later. And besides that, God had already raised up others like Ezra and Nehemiah to lead the people home to rebuild the temple. So by the third year, when he gets this vision in this fast time, those who first left exile at the decree had already started rebuilding Jerusalem. In spite of all the opposition, they had cleared the temple area. They had resumed the daily sacrifices. They had laid the foundation stone, relayed it for the temple. And therefore, the Passover in the third year of Cyrus would have been particularly joyous. Particularly. Finally. Finally. But not for Daniel. Daniel's not celebrating. Daniel is mourning and, and he's fasting and he's praying for something that apparently is more urgent than, than celebrating the greatest feast among the Israelites. Why is he doing that? Why is he not celebrating? Why is he mourning? Why is he fasting? Well, it turns out that although it had been two years since the decree to return was given, not many Jews were going back to rebuild the temple. Not many were returning to Jerusalem. And at this point, it might help to know how grievous that is by knowing that in ancient Judaism, Jerusalem and the temple were the center of the Jewish faith. That was the center of everything. That was their sacred space. That was the, the place where as a nation that God met with his people. It was the place of the priesthood. It was the place where the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies once a year to atone for the people's sin. It was the place that every Jewish male was required to attend three times a year for three of the seven feasts. And so to have a zeal for the city was to have a zeal for God. To have a zeal for the temple was to have a zeal for God because it was so central in ancient Judaism. But the exiles in Babylon and now Persia weren't returning. Why? They had lost their love for their home. They weren't homesick anymore. They had grown accustomed to living in Babylon. They forgot who they were. And they stopped loving the Lord with all of their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. They became casualties in the cosmic war between the princes of light and the princes of darkness. Same thing is happening today. Like the Jews in Babylon, some believers have lost their first love for their ultimate home. They no longer are homesick for heaven. They've conformed to the ways of Babylon. They've forgotten who they are. And their love for God has practically grown cold. You know, most of the time, that whole process begins with an offense. Over the years, I've seen this over and over and over and over again. 
begins with an offense against somebody in authority usually. Oftentimes, maybe even a parent or another Christian. Sometimes against the church. But it's an offense. And when you boil it down, when you talk to people, when you question, when you dig down, you know what it usually ends up being? The person has become offended at God. It always boils down to that. God did not come through for them the way He thought they should. Or God has become embarrassing to them in this modern society in which we live. People fall away ultimately because they're offended at God. That's how Satan gets in. You know, think about it. That's how he got in in the garden. He created an offense. God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows that you'll get something that he doesn't want you to have. That's an offense. Eve looked up. God's doing that. See? That's how he works. That's how Satan gets in. And without repentance and restoration, the offense festers. And slowly, a person begins turning away from a biblically defined faith to a self-defined faith. And then they go from a vibrant faith to a lukewarm faith and from the fellowship of believers to forsaking that fellowship, from sound doctrine to worldly deception. Or even another gospel that's no gospel at all a more culturally acceptable version of the gospel that's nothing but a lie from the father of lies. It's happening. It's happening in droves right now. This spiritual phenomenon, though, has always existed, but mostly as an individual experience. Today, it seems like it's simultaneously happening in large swaths of the body of Christ. I thought Leah's prayer this morning over us for protection was very appropriate. You need to realize you're in a battle. You re- need to realize you're not all that. Amen. You need to realize that. You need to realize that, in, that my strength really comes in the weakness of recognizing that. Peter says, be alert. He doesn't say that for no reason whatsoever. That's military talk, folks. Because why? Well, there's a battle going on. And you have to realize that. The framework, you know, it seems like this, it's happening, like I said, in large swaths uh, of the body of Christ. And, and sometimes I wonder, you know, is this that large-scale apostasy and falling away that will take place in the last days mentioned by the Apostle Paul to Timothy in both of his letters? I don't know. But the framework certainly for apostasy has been set in place through a watered-down version of the gospel and the faith that has been part of the model of many churches now for three decades. This model came about in a desire to make the church more accessible to unbelievers, but it's backfired. And it's made the church the weakest it's been since the Middle Ages. So weak that few can discern the incredible amount of deception and heresy today that's being passed off as biblically sound teaching. The pastors of this model withhold the depth of the word from the sheep. Its converts assume they are saved without ever having a core understanding of the gospel or why they need to be saved. And those who do believe and are saved are kept in perpetual infancy. 
constantly on spiritual milk, easy pickings for the great deceiver. It's disheartening. But it's even more disheartening, I think, when we know somebody who becomes a casualty of this great cosmic spiritual battle. What do we do when deception is embraced by somebody we love? When our encouragement is ignored and the seed of the Word does not penetrate their prideful heart. Well, what did Daniel do for the Israelites who were no longer homesick for God? No longer homesick for the presence of God and the temple of God and had assimilated into the ways of Babylon. I'll tell you what he did. He fasted and he prayed. He sought God. And you know what? It's through fasting and prayer that we call on the Lord to soften people's hearts, to expose the deception, to bring them to repentance and restore the joy of uh, their salvation. Nothing takes the place of earnest, heartfelt prayer and prayer and fasting. It's way more powerful than you think it is. But as we pray, we have to do so as those who are not immune to the deceptive spirits of Babylon roaming about on the battlefield of this great war. Like Peter says, we need to be spiritually vigilant. We need to stay tight and close with God. We need to stay in that place where God's Word is alive to us. Like Hebrews 4.12 says, and powerful, and we sense and feel the aliveness and the power of God's Word. We need wisdom and understanding from God. We need fresh encounters with God. That's why Daniel's praying. And all fresh encounters are born out of seasons and situations where we feel the heat of the spiritual battle, where we feel our helplessness. Where we learn through the Holy Spirit to abandon our pride and pray from the deepest place in our heart. And when we come to that place, we'll inevitably experience three things from God in prayer that will strengthen us for the battle, as Paul says, so that we would remain strong in the Lord and the power of His might. There are three things that God speaks to our heart in the battle. The first one is this. You are loved. So simple, so profound. First thing, the angel says to Daniel, the first words, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Now this phrase in the English is from two Hebrew words. The first one is the general word for man. The second word is best known for its negative use in the 10th commandment, thou shall not covet. It's the word covet. But here it's used in the positive sense, and it means a man who is coveted by God, desired by God, precious to God, valuable to God, loved by God. That's what God is saying to Daniel through the angel. I love you. First thing to calm his soul. First thing in the heat of the battle that he says to him, Daniel, you are loved. You're precious to me. When you're really pouring out your heart to God, in the heat of the battle. That is one of the first things, if not the first thing God does, is He reaffirms His love for us because in the battle, you can begin to doubt His love. We need to know His love. We need to experience His faithful love in order to faithfully love Him. Let me say that again. That's a tweet. 
We need to know and experience his faithful love in order to faithfully love him in return. The power to faithfully love him comes from experiencing and knowing his faithful love to us. So you have to experience it. It's, it's, I theologically know it. I see it. I have a few verses here. I agree with it. But are you experiencing that? Has that love touched your heart? Has that love touched your spirit lately? We need to know that He loved us and He set His Son for us as an atoning sacrifice, First John. We need to know that His love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. We need to remember who we are, that we are God's chosen people set apart and dearly loved. Colossians 3.2 Dearly loved. Not just loved. Dearly loved. And so he reminds us of his love because if you know you're unconditionally loved by God, why is it so important if you are experiencing that love in your spirit? You want to know something? You can stand in any battle. You will not fall in any battle. You will be secure in any trial. If you know that God loves you, you can have your whole life falling apart, but if you're walking along praying and you sense and know and experience that loving touch of God, you can stand. So he reminds us of his love. That's why, this is why Paul prays that for the Ephesian believers. He says, and I pray, Ephesians 3.17, that you being rooted and established in love, Maybe it may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Look at the one thing, the first thing, the first thing that God wants you to know. Not know theologically and know experientially. Know by the Spirit. Know by the Word. Know in your head. Know in your heart. Is it above all else? He loves you with a love that's so great that He gave His one and only Son for you. Amen. Conversely, it is also the one thing, the love of God, that Satan attacks the most because he knows the power of God's love in our life. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. There's usually a portion of Scripture that's read almost at every wedding. Most people think, this is how I'm supposed to love my spouse. It's really about God's love for us and then that that love is in us, and by his love, we can love others, including our spouse. All the spouses said? Amen. Okay. This is the love of God working through us. No human being can love this way. This is divine love. God's love, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So when we know we are loved by God and protected from the evil one, what happens? Where our faith remains strong. Look at love. What does it do? When we're in love, we are protected. When we're experiencing His love, we remain faith-filled. When we're experiencing His love, our, our hope is renewed. When we experience His love, we can persevere. We can stand in the battle. And, and if you do not sense His love when you're, when you're in that place of, of prayer and the heat of the battle, you really have to consider the possibility, and I say this with love, that you haven't yet deeply humbled yourself before God. You've let God part way in. A lot of believers do that. They let Him part way in. There used to be an old kind of uh, 
illustration someone talked about, like my, the heart, my, my heart's like a, like a home, and a home has a whole bunch of rooms in it. And so when someone believes, they say, I'm going to let you into this room and this room, but I'm not going to let you into this room. I'll give you part. But they still keep kind of control of their life. They don't let God all the way in. And, and there's, I suppose, reasons for that. Certainly, the top two, the first one would be, would be condemnation. So you hold something back because of guilt over the past sin or a, a present sin. So if I was to completely give myself to God, he might reject me because of this. Therefore, I'll hold back some of my heart. Not realizing that that very condemning sentence, that that very guilt is what Jesus Christ left heaven's glory to come to the earth and die on a cross to bear for you. Those are the stripes across his back. That's what he came for. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. That's the fact. That's the truth. Satan will use those things. Do not let him use that in your life. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you acknowledge your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive what? All your sin and cleanse you from That's the most used verse in the Bible. You do realize that. Don't be ashamed of going to that verse as often as you need to. Often, daily. Repentance is a part of life. It's not something we do once. It's not a one and done. It's an ongoing thing. It's a life of repentance. All of life. I forget who said it. All of life is repentance and faith. But you know the second reason sometimes I, I think we can't humble ourselves all the way down? It's because of pride. And it, it's because we're holding on, again, we're holding back something because we don't want to let go of control of our life. And so we're praying, God, help me stay in control. Rather than, God, take everything. I'm yours. Amen. I'll take door number two. That's what God's calling us to do. But you've got to get to that place. I see kind of so many people just holding back from that in their lives. Especially guys. I don't have time to go there. <laughs> I was. I don't know why, why it's true. But sometimes it's almost impossible for us to get to that level of humility where God's grace is dumped on us without the heat being turned up in the battle. I don't know. Is that just me? Am I an anomaly? Am I like the weird Christian here? Or is everybody with me on that? I mean, when it goes south, right? Is there something that gets a little more intense with your prayer before God? Is there something that changes you? Do you feel a bit more humble in that scenario? That your need for God has all of a sudden been elevated. It really hasn't. Your need for God's the same all the time, whether you know it or not. But it kind of reminds you of that, doesn't it? And the good news is, if we will humble ourselves, the promise of God is that He'll give us all the grace that we need to know and experience His love so we'll be protected, so our faith remains strong, so our hope is renewed, and we persevere in the trial. Now, the love of God first thing. Second thing God speaks to our hearts in the battle is found in verse 12. Do not fear. That's what Daniel heard from God through the angel. Do not be afraid. 
which is the opposite of only believe. When I hear that word, do not be afraid, I just kind of finish it, but only believe. They're polar opposites. Of course, that's from, that, that phrase is um, from Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 5. It's the story of when the leader of the synagogue in Capernaum comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is ill, she's about to die, please come and pray, please come and heal her. Jesus agrees. So it's the leader of the synagogue, right? So everybody wants to know what's going on with the leader of the synagogue. A great crowd is following. They're, as, they're, as they're going about halfway there, there's a woman by the providence of God on the outside of the crowd. She has an issue of blood. She's been cut off from life in Israel because of it. She cannot have a husband because of it. She cannot come into contact with people because of it. She, has to, she can't have, go near the temple because of it. Her life has just completely been demolished by this issue of blood. But she hears about Jesus, and she says to herself, if I can but just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Amen. And so, in amazing faith, she presses against all of the cultural barriers, presses through the crowd and lays hold of Jesus' garment and is instantly healed. Jesus asks, who touched me? There's a whole scenario that takes place. Meanwhile, one of the servants from the synagogue leader's home comes to the, the leader of the synagogue and says, your daughter's dead. And Jesus does something right then, immediately. He says, he turns to the leader of the synagogue and says, do not be afraid, only believe. Oh. We need to hear those words often in our life. Daniel here, he's praying, right? He's praying about the future of his people. And it's a future he, know from, he knew from the visions that are going to involve a little bit of suffering for them. And he was so concerned about it that apparently he was worrying to the place of fearing the future and wondering where God was in all of this. He was fearing. In one sense, you know, fear is it's just the result of overwhelming circumstances. But in another sense, it's the result of believing that God is not present to help. Because if he was present, and if he was right there, why would you fear? There'd be no reason to fear, right? If I believe he's present to help me in the battle, I have no reason for fear, no matter how big the enemy to be, the enemy may be, no matter what the mountain is. Why? Because he's infinitely bigger. He's God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Now, to counteract Daniel's fear, uh, the angel says to Daniel, Daniel, here, I'm gonna, I'll give you an illustration of this. It's like he's preaching a sermon to him. I'll tell you this. The moment you first prayed, the moment you first prayed, I was dispatched to you by God. In other words, God was at work when you didn't even know he was at work. You were thinking nothing has happened after three weeks. I tell you what, there was a huge battle that took place over that prayer. What does that mean? God's at work when even we don't feel like he's at work. That reminds me of Waymaker, huh? Yeah, you never stop working. Do you believe it? Even when I feel, don't feel like you're working in my life, you're hearing my prayers. The angel said, don't be afraid, because God was working out his plan with the nation of Israel, and it may have involved some future suffering. And the same thing is true in our life, because we live in a fallen world, we're in a war, but ultimately his plan will culminate in unbelievable glory, 
sheer glory. Romans 8.18 says this. It says that this glory is so great that if you took all of our suffering as the soldiers of Christ on this cosmic battlefield of every believer and you stacked it all up on a scale, a balance, you put it on one side, boom, goes down. If you were to put the glory on the other, that whole scale would go flying into the air and do infinity. Boom. The glory so far outweighs the suffering. Look, in this life, we're going to experience joys and sorrows. But the promises we have in God are this, number one, in both, he is at work for our good, Romans 8, 28, in both. Number two, and that good purpose, Romans 8, 29, includes the promise of, of, of being made like Christ so that one day we will share in the glory of Christ. 1 John 3, 2, when we see him, we will be like him. And in the meantime, until that day, Romans 8, 26, we, are, we have the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who will help us, what? In all of our weaknesses as we fight the good fight of faith. Do not fear. Do not fear. You are loved. Do not fear. Thirdly, peace be strong. Look at verse 19. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed. There's the first two. He said, peace. Be strong now. Be strong. Now one wonders, for a lot of reasons, how peace could be possible in the light of all that Daniel has to fear. Well, I'll tell you why. Because God imparts peace to his children. Amen. When the angel said, peace, be strong, there was obviously a supernatural impartation of peace because Daniel immediately experiences it. It's not like, okay, thank you, but he's still worried it, 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 there's an instant change. There's an impartation. You know, Paul talks about that impartation of peace over in Philippians chapter 4. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, and thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what? And the, the peace of God, which what? Transcends all understanding. It goes beyond logical explanation. We can't explain it. We don't know it, but we sense it. We know it. It's real. Peace. And that peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But there's something else here that, that the angel tells Daniel that sustains that impartation of peace, that helps it stay. It's found right at, at the end uh, uh, of the chapter. After telling Daniel, this supernatural being, after telling Daniel, he's got to return and continue the battle against the prince of Persia. He says this in verse 21. But first, before I do that, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. So what is in this particular book of truth? Well, what happens right after that? Chapter 11, chapter 12. This is the whole vision of what's going to happen in the future. So what was in the book of truth? The future. Everything contained in chapter 11 and chapter 12 comes out of this book, and not only the future for the nation of Israel, but the whole future, all the future for all of creation. It's found in a book, a book that belongs to God, because the book reflects the mind of God, who not only knows the future, but is sovereign over the future. And therefore, we need not fear, and therefore, we can have peace. Why? Because as Ephesians 1 says, He is working out everything. Say everything. everything. In conformity with the purpose of His will. Not some things, everything. Through Isaiah, God says it like this, very pictorially. 
Isaiah 46, I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient of times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about, and what I have planned, that I will do. Amen. That's, that's really conclusive, isn't it? God's, God's sovereign foreknowledge is the ultimate, the ultimate source of sustained peace in our life, that He is in control and that His destiny for you is glory. And in the meantime, He gives us so many gifts, including His Spirit. As the psalmist said, He's our rock. He knows the end from the beginning. His purpose will stand. He will accomplish His will. And you know, that's not just true concerning the nations or us corporately. It's, it's true concerning each one of our lives individually. He knows our days, right, from beginning when he formed us in our mother's womb to the moment we were born again, born a second time when we received the gospel, to the moment of our last breath when we enter his presence. He knows us. He made us. He formed us. He fashioned us. And his purpose in our lives will stand, and he will accomplish his will. Why? Because he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. All right, I got peace now. I got peace. That gives you peace. Why? Because peace is like, you're steady now. Why? Because he's in control. If I can just trust him, I can have that peace. Because he what? He that started will complete the work. Now, it says complete here. He began a good work. You know, that means there, there's got to be a starting point at which God begins the good work in you. And that starting point is the moment that you truly believe the gospel. And the gospel is this. We have sinned against God in so many ways. But God loved us so much that he sent his only son from heaven to earth to die on the cross. And there on the cross took the penalty for all of our sin. Perfect Jesus, sinless Jesus, took the penalty for all of sin. That's what happened on the cross in the unseen realm. In the seen realm, the nails, right? The crown, the crucifixion. But in the unseen realm, Jesus was bearing the wrath of God that our sin deserved because God's a just God and he must judge sin but he's also a loving God, so he provides a sin substitute for us, his very own son. Jesus died. And right before he died, he said what? It is finished. It's done. Dies, goes in the grave. Three days later, rises from the dead to make us right with God. That's the gospel. That's where it begins. That's where the work of God begins in our life. Now, you're here this morning. He said, the work of God, I remember when the work of God began in my life. I remember when I believed. I remember that day or that season in my life. I can't pinpoint it, but it happened in this season. I know, I see the fruit of it. But maybe you can't say that. I don't know for sure. You can know for sure. You can know for sure before you leave this morning. It's a matter of simple faith. It's by grace that we are saved through faith. It's not by our own efforts. It's not by us getting our act together. It's not by us turning over a new leaf, cleaning up. No, 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 no. 
It's by God's grace. He gives it as a gift to us. You can't stand there and have somebody give you a gift and go, here, let me take something out and pay you for that. It's no longer a gift. Salvation's a gift. You can't pay for it. It's by God's grace. And it's received, what? Through faith. And that faith, Eve, isn't a gift from God. And God gives you that to believe. And so you can believe this morning. I want to lead you. If you've never believed, I want to lead you in a simple confession of faith. Do you believe? Do you believe the gospel? I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin and that he rose again from the dead to make me a child of God. I believe that. I believe I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God by faith, not by my works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He did it for me. I receive that. All right, I want to leave you. Leave you with something this morning. It's really simple. You are loved, right? Do not fear. Peace be strong. Can you, can you say it with me? You are loved. Do not fear. Peace be strong. You are loved. You know why? It's the first thing God wants you to know. It's the first thing. Do not fear. He's already at work. Here's your prayer. He's working even though you can't see Him working. Even though you don't feel like it. And peace be strong. He is a sovereign God who will, who will finish the good work He started in you under the day of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that?